0: First, a quick update. Uh, my apologies for the, the delay in the last few months of new content. Unfortunately, I had a personal illness that put me out of things for a little while, but I'm back healthy, fit, ready to go, and we're going to have new episodes uh, every week. This will be episode 10 from several months ago, just after the Asian Summit discussion we had of episode 9. Uh, then we're going to have uh, new episodes basically from mid-July onwards, and we're going to release them once every day this week, and then after that, we're going to back to our regularly scheduled broadcast of once per week. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. We have lots more coming this week and more in the future. This week, we're following up from last week's leaked documents from the 32nd Asian Summit in Singapore, an update on U.S. steel and aluminium tariffs, big news out of the Dominican Republic, news on the Saudi-Qatari split in the Arabian Peninsula, a shift in U.S. policy towards the Arabian Peninsula, and a deeper dive on the Iranian nuclear deal. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 4th of May. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. Now to this week's roundup. First, we're going to look at the 32nd ASEAN Summit in Singapore. Now, last week we had discussed how there had been a series of leaked documents, uh, draft documents, that were going into the lead-up to this event. And they showed how behind-the-scenes diplomacy actually works, with various countries trying to insert words in and take other words out of the chairman's statement. Now that the summit has come to its conclusion and we have the actual public document being made in the chairman's statement, we can now look at this and compare it to the draft and see which countries managed to get what they wanted in and how the document actually ended up being. However, because it's a consensus model, ASEAN will go with basically the lowest common denominator. It's like if anyone is unable to come to an agreement on a particular term, it will be left out or it won't be discussed at all. This means that any country can bring the organization to a halt on various issues. And so we discussed this mainly in the view of Cambodia, and it's basically watering down language in regards to the South China Sea disputes between various countries and China. So now let's have a look at the actual statement that came out the other end. And so we have here under point 23 regional and international issues and developments the third paragraph saying we discussed the matters relating to the south china sea and took note of the concerns expressed by some leaders on the land reclamations and activities in the area which have eroded trust and confidence increased tensions and may undermine peace security and stability in the region now it's important to remember in the draft document we looked at last week the philippines was trying to include the words serious in front of concerns and massive in front of the land reclamations and appears that those words have not come out on the other end. So it seems like the watering down of language did go through and that ASEAN is not going to take a stronger stance on the South China Sea. While this may seem like dry diplomatic speech, it actually is quite important considering recent developments in the South China Sea. Up until now, uh, Woody Island in the Parcel Islands, which is kind of at the northern end of the South China Sea, have been the only ones with Chinese missile installations on them, surface-to-surface you know, surface, you know, against seaborne assets, as well as surface-to-air missiles. However, very recently, according to unnamed sources in the US intelligence community, apparently missiles have been moved to Fiery Cross Reef, Subi Reef, and Mischief Reef in the last 30 days. And these are in the Spratly Islands that are almost dead center, quite deeply embedded in the South China Sea. So these include the YJ-12B cruise missiles that could target ships up to 295 nautical miles away, and the HQ-9B long-range surface-to-air missiles with uh, about 160 miles worth of distance uh, attacking air assets. And so this is a, a further military escalation by China to try and secure the South China Sea and make it safe for its travel routes that tries to gain oil and mineral resources from Arabian Peninsula and Africa and bring them through the Malacca Strait up through the South China Sea to China to keep the economy moving. And so back to ASEAN, this militarization has quite an embarrassing effect on this recent statement because right after that paragraph we had just discussed, there is another paragraph which states, we emphasize the importance of non-militarization and self-restraint in the conduct of all activities by claimants and all other states, including those mentioned in the DOC, which is the Declaration of Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea, that could further complicate the situation and escalate tensions in the South China Sea. So, as ASEAN has come out with this somewhat watered-down statement on the South China Sea, at the same time, these intelligence reports are coming out that China effectively capitalized on its situation in the South China Sea and further militarized it. This makes ASEAN look as an international organization quite weak and that it's been taken advantage of uh, and it's unable to respond to increasing pressure from China in the region. This means that ASEAN as an international organization is going to be considered as less useful in these kind of bilateral and multilateral disputes between countries in the region and that it's going to take a back seat to Other negotiations that are going to be happening between countries, mainly because of that consensus model means that while the consensus model is great to keep everyone on board and make sure there's no disunity um, on various issues and that they can come together on things that they do agree on and just put aside things that they're never going to agree on and just would cause distress. At the same time, it means any contentious issues, it's unable to deal with these and that limits the applicability of ASEAN throughout various issues in the local area. So it means that instead we'll see the countries mentioned in the previous document in that draft where we saw the Philippines and Vietnam trying to insert language uh, that was stronger against China, they'll probably have to to find another avenue in which to try and counter China and that means moving closer to the U.S. and trying to work together uh, through bilateral multilateral means outside of ASEAN to try and form some kind of block to not so much contain China, but just try and balance China and say that this is as far as you're going, you're not allowed to go any further, and trying to roll back some of these effects. And so for these nations that had hoped diplomacy might lead the way, instead they'll be forced to take a somewhat more assertive approach. But many of them lack the ability to do so, they just don't have the money or military. So that means the only real way they have of countering China is to invite a third party in to try and help them and support them. And there's only a a couple options really Um, maybe India um, but India is unlikely to want to get too deeply involved the biggest one would be the US it's the most obvious it has the largest naval military in the world it's a very uh, strong economy can support those countries and provide them the help they need but it means dragging the US into the South China Sea dispute which has its pluses and minuses those countries probably don't want the South China Sea dispute to become part of this grander China versus U.S. primacy battle that they see going on in the background. And they would have hoped to be able to deal with it themselves without introducing this extra level of tension. But on the positive, they get a backer who is quite strong and can actually stand up to China unlike themselves. And so you had seen in the past this already occurring where Vietnam had invited a U.S. aircraft carrier for the first time since the Vietnam War and that the Philippines, who in this draft document had seen a far, far more stronger stance against China, despite in the past President Duterte saying he was kind of friendly with China and would get along, it appears that perhaps the Philippines is shifting back to its original position of being very pro-US. This militarization of the Spratlys is a major step forward for China, and it's going to greatly increase tension, so we'll keep an eye on it and give you any updates as they come through. Now to global US tariffs on steel and aluminium. The U.S. administration has extended negotiations for another 30 days with Canada, the EU, and Mexico, but uh, it already has a deal in principle with Argentina, Brazil, and Australia. Back in March, the administration had set worldwide tariffs of 25% on steel and 10% on aluminium on imports into the U.S. However, some countries were exempted temporarily, so these are Canada, the EU, Mexico, basically important trading partners of the U.S. where they wanted to have more time to engage in negotiations. This is also reflected in South Korea, where they were given an indefinite exemption in return for a 30% cut in their steel exports to the US. So instead of taking a tax on their exports, they just reduced the volume that they were sending to the US. So you may see with these other countries and the EU, the administration may be pushing for, in lieu of tariffs, uh, something similar to the South Korean situation where there's some kind of quota put in place. This is a buying time for negotiations to continue. It's unlikely that there'll be too many more exemptions, as eventually the US will look weak and it's unwilling to actually enact the sanctions on these various countries, but it makes sense to buy time and get the negotiations right rather than rush them through. Now the Dominican Republic, which has recently shifted its recognition from Taiwan to mainline China as the true representative of the Chinese people. China and Taiwan operate under a one China principle where both of them agree that China is one country but they disagree on who the legitimate government is. And it allows this uneasy peace to exist between the two countries. During the Cold War, it was extremely important to the mainline Chinese Communist Party to achieve international recognition. And in the 70s, they finally achieved a major breakthrough where they were made the UN representative of China and Taiwan was replaced by them. The rapprochement between China and the US during the Cold War as well with the famous Mao and Nixon meeting also opened the floodgates for many other nations to recognize China as the legitimate leader and representative of the Chinese people. However, there have been a few holdout states around the world that haven't switched from Taiwan to China. Many of these have been in the Pacific or in South America. Particularly in the South American case, it's been because they haven't had many links in terms of trade with China before now, and so it didn't make sense to change their diplomatic recognition. However, the Dominican Republic has recently switched its allegiance from Taiwan to China after a Taiwan official has stated that a 3.1 US billion dollar package of investments and loans were offered to the Dominican Republic by China. And so while the vast majority of countries recognize mainland China, there are a few holdouts that exist. And China, despite not really needing to win on this particular battlefield, continues to try and push for all countries to recognize it as the legitimate ruler and leader of China. A similar thing occurred last year, where Panama switched from Taiwan to China and we're currently sitting out with only 19 countries remaining, many of them Central American and Pacific nations like Nauru. And so in the recent past there will be something called checkbook diplomacy where both countries will use aid and uh, agreements to try and tempt one country or the other to switch their allegiance. Um, but over time Taiwan has just not been able to keep up with the growing economic and foreign policy power of the mainland Chinese government. And even if you're not Giving aid, just the fact that your important trade partner gives enormous leverage to mainland China. For instance, China is the Dominican Republic's second largest supplier of imported products. And so if China was to make those products more expensive, that would hurt the economy. And so there is an important place for trade in foreign policy and being able to exert pressure through economic incentive is quite useful. As long as survival is not at stake, countries are often very responsive to economic pressure if it's going to mess with their economy and cause a recession. However, the Chinese foreign ministry has said that the move was a political one. It had no economic preconditions. However, the presidential legal advisor of the Dominican Republic, Flavio Dario Espinal, said that while the government was deeply grateful to Taiwan, the history and socioeconomic reality has forced us to change to a new direction. So effectively, this economic power has basically forced the country to switch from Taiwan to China. However, Taiwan has also warned countries about the risks of taking on these concessional loans and that the issue of debt bondage may come up. And this reflects what we've discussed previously in the interview with Dr. Bloomfield about India and how it's responded to Chinese checkbook diplomacy and that it's worried that, and has warned other countries, that engaging in these concessional loans may be taking on too much debt burden than they can bear and that will have consequences for them, much like in Sri Lanka, where as the fact they couldn't meet their loans meant that they provided a 99-year lease on one of their ports to a Chinese state-owned company instead of being able to pay back their loans. Now, to the Arabian Peninsula, in particular the Saudi Arabian and the United Arab Emirates split with Qatar. Now, these countries in the recent past have had terrible diplomatic relations with Qatar over a series of disputes. President Trump has been quite pro Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Up and down President Trump has been supportive of the Saudis and the UAE. However, his previous Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, considered this split to be more of a sideshow, more of a distraction, and not as important as the Iran issue in the region. However, with the recently sworn in Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State, we've seen a shift back towards this view that was held by Tillerson, despite being removed from his position, that this particular dispute between Saudis, UAE, and other Gulf countries against Qatar Is effectively a distraction and that the real issue is Iran and that they should settle this dispute so they can focus on the real issue and the real threat. For a little bit of background on this particular issue, the reason why Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are not getting along with Qatar is basically that Qatar, despite being a small country, has decided that it wants to pursue an independent foreign policy and doesn't want to be told uh, to toe the line and follow these larger countries' uh, views of how the region should be run. They've been able to do this because Qatar is the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. And despite its small size, it has a lot of money. And thus, it's been able to pursue this foreign policy by using its economic heft to try and support it. Part of this has been that Qatar has created and supports a well-known news network, Al Jazeera. However, this network is seen by some other Gulf states as merely a mouthpiece for the Qatari government and that it is pushing Qatari foreign policy. During the Arab Spring, this came to a head where several countries... undergoing revolutions and coups, and Qatar was supporting elements of one side of these disputes and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates would be supporting the other. For instance, in Tunisia, Qatar supported one political party and Saudi Arabia supported the other. But the most evident one was in Egypt, where the Muslim Brotherhood, which briefly came to power after the revolution, was supported by the Qataris, but they were soon after thrown out of power by the military which was supported by saudi arabia and so these countries accuse al jazeera of turning a critical eye to other countries but not towards the qatari government thus only trying to spread discontent in certain places in the world for qatari benefit furthermore they dislike qatar's diplomatic links with iran despite the fact that the uae does maintain formal diplomatic relations also with iran saudi arabia ended theirs after rioters attacked a saudi embassy in tehran in 2016 And so to counter these efforts by Qatar, the Saudi and UAE-led Gulf coalition of of four states in total have demanded that Qatar see to their various demands. And some of these are breaking ties with Iran, uh, shutting down Al Jazeera and various other ideas. These are seen as quite hard to achieve demands and and thus it seems like they're trying to pressure Qatar to basically give in and toe the line like everyone else. And to further this position, they've effectively blockaded the land border between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, preventing any imports or exports through that location, as well as any air travel from their countries to Qatar. This has resulted in Qatar becoming slightly closer to Iran, as it needed to import more goods to survive, especially agricultural goods. But it's also been importing from locations such as Turkey and Britain to, to get milk and other uh, foodstuffs. These countries also accuse Qatar of funding terrorists such as the Muslim Brotherhood, which has now been officially declared a terrorist organization in Egypt, despite its momentary attempt at democratic rule. However, countries like Saudi Arabia have a mixed history with terrorism. Many of the hijackers on 9-11 had Saudi backgrounds, as well as reports that Saudi private citizens are bankrolling terrorists throughout the war on terror. Another part of Qatar's attempt to create an independent foreign policy was inviting the U.S to station a a base in its own territory so that it would have the backing of the U.S. and be able to operate more freely without being coerced by the nations. And they would have a backer in the U.S. in that providing this base, it would have the support of the U.S. when needed. As we discussed earlier, Tillerson and Mattis in the American administration had been considering this a distraction that was best resolved as quickly as possible. And they had differed on Trump on this particular issue where he was more pro-Saudi against the Qataris. However, there's been a recent shift with Mike Pompeo coming into position as Secretary of State. It appears that he and Trump have come together on this particular issue and agreed that it is a distraction, that Madison Tillerson were right, and that Iran is the real threat. And so they've been sending out messages uh, and in conducting meetings with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, trying to pressure them into basically settling this issue, at least for now, so that they can focus their efforts on Iran and its nuclear deal. That's it for this week's roundup. Onto this week's deeper dive. This week, we're going to take a closer look at the Iranian nuclear deal and give you a background of what it is and why there's a bit of consternation now between the US and other partners of the deal about whether the deal should continue in the future. In 2015, Iran signed a deal with the US, China, Russia, France, Britain, and Germany. And so that's the permanent five, the P5, uh, that are the UN Security Council uh, permanent members, plus Germany. To limit its nuclear weapons program, this deal was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA, and this was in response to the heavy sanctions placed upon Iran, as it was declared by the U.S. as a state sponsor of terrorism and a country in pursuit of nuclear weapons. The deal is seen that those sanctions have been rolled back somewhat, uh, providing additional economic impact to Iran, improving its economic fortunes. And in return, they have reduced the number of centrifuges in their nuclear plants, as well as shipping off much of their uranium stockpile to Russia, where they no longer have access to it. In addition, the International Atomic Energy Agency is allowed to make snap inspections of Iran's nuclear sites to make sure they're abiding by the terms of the deal. Through this, Iran has a chance to recover from its economic woes. And other states get the reassurance that Iran won't gain a nuclear weapon. Now the reason why Iran has pursued nuclear weapons is similar to why North Korea has, is that it's a reason for survival and that the countries feel worried that their regimes will be taken out and that this is the best way to secure their future. In particular, Iran, like North Korea, was named an axis of evil country alongside Iraq by George Bush's administration. And after seeing what happened to Iraq and eventually also Libya, Iran had a very strong incentive to try and dissuade the U.S. from turning towards Iran in its attempts at regime change in the region. However, in the past, Iran has been more amenable to diplomacy than North Korea has and has been actually active in reducing its nuclear weapons program in return for economic sanctions being reduced. And while most nations involved in this agreement are happy with the details, The U.S., in particular President Trump, is not so happy with how it's turned out. President Trump doesn't like this deal because there is an end date for when Iran must stop pursuing nuclear power and other nuclear-related activities. However, technically, under non-proliferation treaties, Iran is not allowed to pursue nuclear weapons anyway. So it technically should not matter, but the Sunset Clause does induce some worry that this is only a temporary reprieve. Furthermore, President Trump states that the $100 billion windfall in U.S. dollars that has come about due to this relieving of sanctions will empower Iran and allow it to pursue its other activities in the region, such as Yemen or Syria or Iraq, to help empower its foreign policy and pursue activities that will be to its benefit and potentially at the cost of others in the region or the U.S. So President Trump has until the 12th of May to recertify this deal or to leave it to Congress to deal with. Otherwise, this waving of sanctions will come to an end, and the sanctions will go back on Iran. Furthermore, on last Monday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu revealed what he stated were pages and pages of material from Iran that had proved that it had covertly pursued nuclear weapons in the past, and that Tehran had continued to pursue what was described as nuclear weapons knowledge after the project had been shuttered in 2003. He's using this evidence to make a case that Iran has lied about its nuclear ambitions in the past and that this has undermined the deal that was made uh, in 2015. However, in 2004, the International Atomic Energy Agency had already stated that Iran had lied and misled and denied and delayed whenever it came to information about the nuclear weapons program that it had requested. So this public presentation by Prime Minister Netanyahu isn't really new information at all. It's things we already knew. But it is more an attempt to try and speak to the U.S. and other parties in the region to try and convince them that Iran is not a trustworthy country and that it's lied in the past, that it will lie at the moment, and it's going to lie into the future. And thus, it cannot be trusted the deal, and a harder stance is required. Now, part of this is because Israel has deep, deep antipathy towards Iran, in particular, Iran's increasing influence in Iraq, as well as, in particular, Syria, because it's on the north end of Israel's borders. And so while there's an attempt to bring the U.S. on side, it's unlikely to work with other countries involved in the deal, particularly the EU, Britain and Russia. And while this may help bring the U.S. onto Israel's side and more harder stance towards Iran, it's unlikely to convince the other permanent five or Germany to give up this deal, which most parties seem quite happy to adhere to. And so if America did reassert sanctions, it won't be as impactful because Iran would have multiple other countries To trade with instead of the US and has already switched to other currencies to engage in trade with as the dollar was no longer available to it during the previous sanctions so the impact would be minimal and Iran could continue to go as it as it has before but with the additional support of many other countries maintaining normal relations with it furthermore the International Atomic Energy Agency has stated that there are no credible indications of activities in Iran relevant to the development of nuclear explosive device after 2009 The only area where Israel may have a serious point is that it states it has found previously unknown nuclear testing sites and that it may try and pressure the International Atomic Energy Agency to investigate these sites to make sure there's no unknown program going in behind the scenes. However, we don't know if these sites were previously dismantled and closed or if they're still active. Also, some of these are military sites and so it's unlikely that the government is going to be willing to let other people walk into the military sites and investigate them except under the most close supervision by the Iranian military. So the position of all other countries except the U.S. involved in this particular deal is probably best summed up by British Foreign Secretary's Boris Johnson's statement that the Iran nuclear deal is not based on trust about Iran's intentions, rather is based on tough verification. And this idea that since the states don't trust Iran, regardless of whether it may have lied in the past or not, as long as the states believe that the verification occurring is legitimate and real, then they don't need to worry about trusting Iran's word. They know from their own verifications that the situation on the ground is what they believe it to be. Whether or not the Trump administration recertifies this deal or not will tell us a lot about its policy towards the Middle East in the future, although it's going to take a more hardline stance against Iran, which it appears to be taking, or if it's going to take a more President Obama approach to the region. That's it for this week's podcast. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw. As always, you can find us at our website, envoyfpa.org. You can also contact us at our email, envoyuwa at gmail.com, with any questions, feedback, or requests you may have.